Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 205, Across the Sea, part one. So this week I want to start us on a new series, one that I think will be valuable for two reasons. First, of course, it's interesting material. Second, it stretches, in a certain sense, the boundaries of what this podcast is about. Now, I like to think I've always been pretty clear that the boundaries of the History of Japan podcast do not stop at the current or historical borders of Japan. What makes Japan worth studying is the way in which it fits so interestingly into the broader narratives of world history. Yet my previous episodes have, broadly speaking, been geographically centered on Japan, with an emphasis on how global trends have affected the country and how Japan has affected the globe in turn. Nevertheless, they've been centered on that national unit. So it's with some trepidation that I start a new series on the Japanese diaspora, because in many ways, far beyond what we've already done, I'll be stepping outside of my comfort zone. But I think the story is a fascinating one, and it's important for many reasons, so it's worth the risk. The question at hand, simply put, is this. There are, depending on whose numbers you like, somewhere around 3.5 million descendants of Japanese nationals living in countries outside of Japan, the vast majority in one of two places, either the United States or Brazil, which actually has the largest population of Nikkeijin, the descendants of Japanese immigrants. However, however, Nikkeijin are not just concentrated in the United States or Brazil, but scattered across a host of other countries as disparate as Singapore and Switzerland. So how did they get there? Why did their ancestors choose to leave? And how do these communities relate to both their current countries and to Japan itself? These are powerful questions, and ones that should have resonance for all of us, not only those of us who have Japanese ancestry or have friends or family members who do. After all, One way or another, ethnically speaking, very few of us are where our ancestors started out. I generally don't talk that much about myself or my own beliefs on the podcast because that's not really the point, but in this case, these are questions which, framed slightly differently, do have powerful resonance for me personally. As a Jew who takes a lot of pride in that identity, the tensions inherent in this story are ones I sympathize with very profoundly. Pride in one's own nation of residence, combined with an awareness of being out of the mainstream. Tension between assimilation and maintaining a unique identity. And, of course, tension surrounding a personal relationship between my own modern self, traditional culture, and the place from which that culture comes. I imagine many of us, if not all, share at least some of those same tensions one way or another. Now, even restricted as we are to looking at immigrants of Japanese ancestry, well, there's no way we can do justice to the stories of so many different peoples and communities, even with a multi-part series. That would be a whole other podcast in its own right. But hey, just because a thing is hard doesn't make it not worth doing. In point of fact, in my experience, it tends to be very much the opposite. That which is worth doing tends to be hard. So with that lengthy introduction out of the way, how did the Japanese diaspora get started? Well, the pithy answer is, further back than you think. As by now you are all hopefully aware, Japan is an island country, and people on islands tend to get pretty handy with boats. 
250-year prohibitions on the building of large ones notwithstanding. Overseas Japanese communities of merchants, diplomats, and others have existed in places as far removed as China and what is now Vietnam since Japan's medieval period, and departures from the islands really began to pick up during the Sengoku era. The chaos of the civil wars drove some to seek their fortunes overseas. The most famous were likely the Wako, bands of pirate raiders who plundered the coasts of Korea and China. Both countries' rulers blamed the Japanese for the raids, and while there undoubtedly were some Japanese among the pirate crews, in reality, they were fairly ethnically mixed. We know of Japanese enclaves as far away as the Dutch East Indies during the Sengoku period, often settlements of pirates and ronin who served as mercenaries for the Spanish, Portuguese, or Dutch. Indeed, the Dutch conquered some of their earliest holdings in what is now Indonesia using, among others, Japanese mercenaries. The darker side of this Sengoku diaspora was the slave trade. The Portuguese and Spanish brought their version of slavery, the backbone of their colonial empires, to Japan, and while I don't really want to get bogged down in the weeds here, they did encounter a slave system in Japan that very much resembled, to some extent, their own. To keep it simple, slavery was legal in pre-modern Japan, though its extent is very hard to pinpoint. It's not really attested to in many documents. As a result, we do know that when Europeans arrived in Japan, one of the things they purchased were Japanese slaves. It's very likely that the earliest Japanese to go to Europe were actually slaves. There were complaints dating as far back as the 1570s of Portuguese merchants buying Japanese slaves particularly women, for purposes that are very dark to consider, and taking them back to Portugal to live in sin. The practice was widespread enough that King Sebastian of Portugal actually banned taking Japanese as slaves because he was worried that the avarice and greed of slave traders was undermining the activity of Portuguese missionaries. After all, nothing says blessed are the meek like slapping someone in irons and shipping them to the other end of the earth, right? It's unclear the extent to which King Sebastian's ban was ever enforced, particularly since daimyo who happened to look the other way to slave traders, or who profited from selling commoners captured during the civil wars, might happen to get a better deal on some Portuguese weapons. Markets, after all, are a volatile thing. The practice was still widespread enough that Toyotomi Hideyoshi attempted to ban it in 1590, and the association of Portuguese with slavery became part of the justification for banning them from Japan. Hideyoshi even demanded that the Portuguese and Spanish return Japanese slaves to Japan if they wished to get back into the country, though unsurprisingly, that demand proved difficult to fulfill. Also, considering that Hideyoshi was complaining about the taking of Japanese slaves while he was taking boatloads of Koreans in slavery back to Japan, I think we can avoid attributing too much in the way of humanitarianism to him. Anyway, the practice of limited overseas community of Japanese, voluntary or less voluntary, continued until the 1640s, when the Tokugawa Bakufu banned further voyages and commanded that all Japanese return home on pain of exile. The exact legacy of this earliest Japanese diaspora is very hard to figure due to the paucity of reliable records. 
Who knows where the descendants of those first Japanese to live abroad are today? For the 250 years of the Tokugawa shogunate leaving Japan without the express permission of the shogun, extended, for example, to members of the 1860 diplomatic mission to the U.S., but not to the Choshu samurai who went to study in London and had to be smuggled out of the country, well, that was a serious criminal offense. The vast majority of those who left the islands during the Tokugawa period were fishermen in coastal vessels who were blown off course by storms and unable to return. Witness, for example, John Matthew Otosan, known in Japanese by his birth name, Otokichi. He served on a coastal transport vessel which brought rice to Edo, and the ship was blown off course by a storm in 1834 and drifted out into the Pacific, where it wandered for 14 months. By the time the ship hit land on the territory of the Macaw Indian tribe on Washington's Olympic Peninsula, only three of the crew still lived. The Macaw eventually sold the captured Japanese to the British, who then tried to use them in trade to get the Japanese to open Nagasaki. It didn't go great, and Otokichi was forced to build a new life abroad. The best known of these castaways, though his life is a bit less crazy than Otokichi's, was Nakahama Manjiro, who was shipwrecked on one of the small islands to the south of Japan and rescued by Americans, who took him on and brought him to California. There he made some money in the California gold rush, before returning home in 1851, where a Tokugawa shogunate, now far more desperate for information about the outside world, made him a samurai, with Hatamoto rank, meaning that he was a direct retainer to the shogun. Otokichi and Nakahama Manjiro are pretty fascinating, and I really want to do episodes on them at some point, but their stories are tangential to what I want to highlight, and also very non-representative of Japan at the time, relying as they did on freak accidents to get them out of the country in the first place. The Meiji Restoration brought theoretical changes to Japanese policies on emigration, leaving the islands no longer being a punishable offense. But for the first decade and a half of its existence, the Meiji government was very uninterested in allowing its citizens to go abroad easily. Its reasoning was simple. People were power. A large citizenry is part of what makes a country wealthy and prosperous. This is, in a lot of ways, a very pre-modern way of looking at population, hearkening back to an older East Asia where a ruler's power was measured less in land and more in how many people he could command to his service. The Japanese government was also very mindful of the danger of being associated with the Chinese, who were, at the time, experiencing a massive outflow of emigrants, particularly from the South. You see, for over a thousand years, arguably still today, the pattern of Chinese politics has been a wealthy, prosperous, and culturally distinct South, ruled over by a North interested in extracting wealth from the South, but very little else. Southern China was traditionally an imperial cash cow, and the South was in very bad shape during the late 19th century. It had been the primary theater of the devastating Taiping Rebellion, which in terms of body count is the largest civil war in the history of humanity. Somewhere around 20 to 30 million people died, compared to a highball estimate of 1 million deaths total, directly or indirectly caused by the contemporaneous American Civil War. 
In the aftermath of the chaos and a very slow recovery, a great many Chinese chose to leave their homes for opportunities abroad, and in the process became targets of nativist sentiment among Westerners, who felt that cheap Chinese labor was undercutting their ability to make a decent wage. The result was a powerful racial backlash against Chinese immigrants, egged on by politicians and industrial leaders who used the Chinese as scapegoats for lower wages. Rioting and massacres, like the ones that occurred in Los Angeles in 1871, grabbed headlines, but even beyond the threats of violence, day to day the Chinese suffered slurs and insults. The Japanese government was very concerned about maintaining a separate image from the Chinese as part of its campaign to have Japan accepted as a civilized nation. Government leaders in turn were very concerned that this effort to be perceived as civilized would be undercut by Japanese laborers abroad engaging in the same work the Chinese were doing. In addition, the relative weakness of the early Meiji government on the international scene meant that government leaders were worried about the impact of immigration on national self-image. What would happen if, say, Japanese immigrants in another country were persecuted, and the Japanese government lacked the clout to step in and demand protection for these people? Well, it would make Japan look weak, as weak as the Chinese, which, again, very unpalatable for the Japanese leadership. What ultimately caused the government to reverse its stance was, as with so many things, economics. The early Meiji economic system was something of a shamble, run as it was by samurai whose Confucian education meant that they didn't really trust merchants. As a result, the economy was primarily state-run. Major industries and infrastructure were managed directly by the government, with rather poor results. This was particularly true because, in order to fund its economic ambitions, the government began printing money with abandon, which those of you with an economic background know is a very bad idea because it leads to runaway inflation. The supply of yen went up, so the value of individual yen went down, so someone's 100 yen a month wages would actually be worth less and less in terms of real buying power. And finding a job was getting harder and harder, because at the same time as the economy was going into a rough patch, the population was growing very rapidly. After about a century and a half of relatively stable populations under the Tokugawa, the early Meiji era saw numbers begin to tick upward again thanks to imported improvements in medicine and sanitation. Not by astronomical numbers, but Japan still picked up an extra 4 million people in about a decade and a half. In 1882, a government shakeup resulted in the rise of a new finance minister tasked with bringing the economic situation to heel, Matsukata Masayoshi. Matsukata was a Satsuma domain samurai by birth and had been a close political ally of the pro-Western Satsuma samurai Okubo Toshimichi until Okubo was assassinated. He distinguished himself in government first as a provincial governor and then as the man who built the skeleton of Japan's modern taxation system. As finance minister in 1882, and then again in 1885, Matsukata initiated a series of exciting economic reforms, guaranteed to stimulate the minds of a few of you, and put the rest of you to sleep. 
he founded the Bank of Japan and began selling off all those economic assets that were draining the treasury, helping to create the modern zaibatsu in the process, since a comparatively small number of firms snapped up what was on offer. Most importantly for our purposes, he started a massive policy of deflation, designed to counteract the runaway inflation of the yen by stabilizing the amount of currency in circulation. This did wonders for the economy and made Matsukata into a legend. He'd go on to become Prime Minister in 1891 and pick up a host of other awards, ranging from a spot in the House of Peers to a position on the Emperor's Privy Council, and eventually the title of Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal to head of the Japanese Red Cross to a dinner in 1902 with King Edward VII of Great Britain. More importantly for our purposes, Matsukata's deflationary policies meant that suddenly cash was harder to come by, which hurts the purchasing power of the poor, being cash-strapped already. And it was under these circumstances that Matsukata recommended the government begin allowing emigration from Japan. The government leaders around him demurred, but eventually accepted his proposal. However, the outflow of immigrants was always carefully controlled by the government. It wasn't like you could just go apply for a Japanese passport, hop on a boat, and be on your merry way. Before 1945, arguably the single most powerful branch of Japan's very powerful government was the Home Ministry, responsible for everything from enforcing the law by overseeing the police, to appointing provincial governors to managing the family registers which tracked the population, to managing public works, to handling official censorship, to managing propaganda, to a host of other things that I am definitely forgetting. For a while, it even managed the government sections responsible for controlling religion, though those eventually got passed over to the Ministry of Education. Anyway, included among the ridiculous host of Home Ministry powers was overseeing the immigration system. Home ministry bureaucrats worked to select those who would be allowed to emigrate. They worked out where these workers would be going and even ran classes for emigrants instructing them on how to behave in their host countries. All of this was designed to avoid first any kind of labor shortage in Japan itself that could be caused by large-scale emigration, and of course to control Japan's image abroad by trying to ensure that emigrants were well-behaved in their host country. This policy of careful control was also encouraged by the army and navy, since most of the emigrants were from rural parts of the country where the military got most of its recruits, the military brass worried constantly that emigration would result in shortages of personnel for recruitment, though so far as I know, that reality never came to pass. Now, that's not to say that everyone who left actually followed those rules, or even that everyone who left went through the official system. After all, while it was not easy to get a Meiji-era passport, it also was not impossible, and visa enforcement in the 19th and 20th centuries was, to say the least, variable depending on where you were. By the 1890s, realizing the complexity of these issues, the Home Ministry began to back out of actively overseeing the emigrant population, following the pattern of much of Japanese history by handing over official responsibility to private companies while indirectly overseeing and managing the efforts of those companies. 
In an interesting twist that did not go unnoticed in the eyes of Japan's opponents, throughout the entirety of Japan's imperial existence, emigration and the dispatch of colonists were handled in remarkably similar ways, through state-sponsored companies that recruited in specific locations in Japan and guided their recruits to their final destinations. Both emigration and colonization, after all, were outgrowths of government policies with specific government-directed objectives. Though colonization had the additional objective of securing territory for the empire, both policies were directed in part to relieve pressure on the rural economy without accidentally deflating it altogether. Now here we arrive at one of those areas where it's hard but necessary to generalize, because while some emigrants left Japan never intending to return, a good number did plan to follow the pattern of so many emigrant workers before and after them, make money in the host country, send some of it home, work for a period of years, and then take what they'd earned back home to start again. But for a variety of reasons we'll get into in later episodes, not everybody who started out this way ended up completing their original plan. Now, for the rest of this episode, I'd like to direct our efforts to talking in general terms about where these emigrants went. With very limited exceptions, mostly business types who went to the major cities, very few ended up in Asia proper. There were Japanese enclaves in the open Chinese ports like Shanghai and Tianjin, and in Korean cities like Busan and Seoul, even prior to annexation but those communities were relatively small in terms of absolute numbers. The biggest draw early on was absolutely the United States, in particular two regions, the West Coast and Hawaii. In the 1890s, America's West Coast was a relatively recent addition to its territory. California had become a state only in 1850, Oregon in 1859, and some far-flung backwater called Washington took until 1889. Populations were still relatively thin on the ground, and the amount of land available was tremendous, as were the resources at hand. To incorporate this west coast into the American economy, you needed more labor, and business leaders were not too picky about where that labor came from. At the same time, xenophobia against Chinese labor resulted in the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which did exactly what it sounds like it did, and incidentally, which was not repealed until 1943, when the American government realized that it made the whole alliance with China to fight World War II look a little awkward. In stepped Japanese migrants to fill the void left by Chinese exclusion, again particularly along the relatively lightly settled West Coast. To completely arbitrarily choose an example, the beautiful city of Seattle was host to a small Japanese population from the 1880s on, clustered mostly in a Japantown, an area of the city dominated by Japanese families and Japanese businesses, in what is now Seattle's International District. Similar communities sprung up everywhere from Los Angeles to Portland. Another target of immigration was a place in the process of becoming a part of the United States, though not entirely voluntarily, Hawaii. The Hawaiian kingdom was, by the 1880s, in kind of a weird place. Its monarch, King Kalakaua, 
was well-liked and talented, and had done a great deal to bring Hawaii into the international community. However, he also had terrible taste in advisors, and was not great at rooting out corruption, which would eventually result in a coup aimed at restricting his powers with a new constitution. He would die in 1891, and his sister, Queen Lililuo Kalani, would assume the throne. However, she was overthrown in 1893 by Westerners seeking to have Hawaii annexed by the United States. However, one thing that Kalakaua, his sister, and their opponents agreed on was that Hawaii needed labor. Kalakaua's goal was to build an export economy to fund his reforms. His opponents mostly just wanted to get rich. But both of them believed that the same path could be used to reach their goals, sugar plantations. Sugar is very valuable, but its manufacture is extremely labor-intensive. But hey, wouldn't you know it, there were plenty of Japanese willing to take those jobs on. However, they also found themselves in a weird position because many of the Americans who eventually seized power in Hawaii suspected that Japan was also interested in making a play on the islands. And to be fair, there were those in Tokyo who did want to, but nobody took the idea very seriously for fear of confrontation with the United States. But nobody told the Americans that, and in an eerie premonition of the attitudes that would eventually lead to the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II, it became the common wisdom that Japanese laborers were a fifth column put in place to support a Japanese seizure of Hawaii. Those fears magnified when, after the overthrow of Hawaii's monarchy, Japan dispatched two ships under none other than future war hero Togo Heihachiro to Hawaii, Togo's orders being to keep an eye on Japanese citizens on the island and to protect them if it proved necessary. Togo was furious at the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy, which had been very pro-Japan, and publicly and repeatedly insulted the American-proclaimed Hawaiian Republic. He actually had to get orders from the naval chief of staff telling him to stop doing that. The final place to which a great many Japanese moved was Central and especially South America. It's pretty hard to generalize why conditions were so ripe for immigration to those countries because, well, there's quite a few of those countries. We'll get into this more in later episodes, but for now, suffice it to say that some countries were in a good position to accept waves of immigration. Brazil and Peru, for example, were more or less financially stable with growing economies and in need of labor. Others, like Mexico, which fell into a 10-ish year civil war around this time, and Bolivia, which was basically the whipping boy of all its neighbors, were in a less good position in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I don't want to get into that too deep right now, so we're going to leave it there. So, last thing, I'm going to leave you with a brief sketch of where we're going from here. Next week, we're going to talk about the Japanese immigrant experience in the United States up until World War II. The week after that, we'll be focused on South America. Then, because I think it's worth doing and quite a few of you have asked for it, we'll get an entire episode on what is, in my opinion, one of the darkest moments of American history, Executive Order 9066. Finally, there will be one wrap-up episode covering some post-war trends and maybe a few of the smaller Japanese immigrant communities that don't fit into the previous scheme. For now, though, 
That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Matthew Delatier for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Across the Sea Part 2.